It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Enlightened philosophers tell us we are divine beings in human form. Let's get real here. How can we live a busy life with a job, kid, and mortgage and still be spiritual? That's what you want to know. Join CJ Liu as together we tackle real life issues through a spiritual lens. Talking with experts about relationships, work, and more. Get practical life skills and learn how to touch, feel, and experience a whole new way of living. This is Fired Up with CJ the place to go if you aren't a monk but still want to live a spiritual life. Join the conversation now at FiredUpWithCJ.com. FiredUpWithCJ.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Fired Up with CJ show. We have a fantastic show today. We're going to be talking about Millennials at Work, a book that was co-authored by Dr. Chip Espinosa, who's also a professor at Concordia University in Irvine. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be on your show. Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm so excited to talk about this topic because I have two millennials myself. I have, um, I think I have one that's officially a millennial. He's 17 years old. And I have another one, which I don't know. He's 14 years old. So I don't know what you quite call him. Borderline. That's the borderline. That's really the cutoff, pretty much. The cutoff. Okay. So he's still millennial then? He's, he's yeah, on he, the edge? He would be like Gen Z or IY, what they're calling them. But he'd be right. IY. <laughs> 
Okay. Because <laughs> he's like, what am I, Mom? And I said, I think you're a millennial, honey. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. So um, here's the exciting things. Millennials are entering in the workforce. Soon they will be, I think, I can't remember the date, but soon they will be the largest uh, population within the workforce. Yeah, and, uh, as of last May, 53.5 million wow. became the largest age cohort in the workforce. As of May? So it's but, already happened. Yeah, May 2015. Oh, wow. So they're the largest generation in the workforce today. Workforce. And guess what? One out of five are already in management. So one, one out of every five managers is a millennial already. Oh, fascinating. Okay. You've been thinking about millennials for a long time. And when we were talking about the show, you said earlier, you had said it's because you were a professor um, and you saw millennials. So, so what initiated your research? What was the thing that drove your research? Well, what was fascinating is I saw other, I saw colleagues that were professors saying, I can't relate to this generation. I want to mm -hmm. retire. I can't connect with them. Oh no. Yeah. Everything that I'm doing isn't working. And my students, I did notice a difference between the 2000s and the 90s. In like the 90s, if you handed out a syllabus, they would take it, throw it in their backpack, never look at it. Right. In the 2000s, they would take the syllabus, they'd take a red pin, go line by line, get their attorney on speed dial, and then ask questions like, hey, is 10 to 12 pages, you know, 10 pages a C and 12 pages an A? How many classes can I miss and still get an A? <laughs> and, you know, and, and this real concern about achieving in the class, but understanding the parameters. Well, the way I saw it is they came in with this notion and they do go into work this way as well. Everything is negotiable. Ah, so a syllabus oh. is a starting point. Now, when you, when you peel that back, what I saw was a generation very engaged in the learning process. Right. They wanted to participate and say, this is how we're going to do it. This is what we want. And I was energized by that. And I kind of, I changed my teaching style to accommodate for that. But for that teacher out there that said what I've been doing forever isn't working, really felt ineffective and really projected that frustration onto the students. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is happening when they transition into work life. Ah. Are those managers out there going, I've been good my whole career, but all of a sudden I can't relate. I can't connect to this generation. Right. So that's what inspired me. So really my students inspired me to do the research and, and to right, do the right. writing. Right. Well, and, and it's both sides, right? The students as well as the teachers who are like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I, I don't like, I, I'm not reaching these students. I'm feeling frustrated. I don't know what I'm doing different, what I could be doing differently. So you started off your, you wrote your own research paper. And so what did you find when you wrote your, oh, you did your own research after this, this, this kind of this curiosity kicked off your own research and you've had a couple of subsequent research projects. Tell me a little bit about those. Well, the first one was, I was trying to find out, is there tension in the workplace between generations? Number one. Number two is, what was the tension about? Mm -hmm. Number three was, are there people out there that are addressing the tension in an effective manner that makes them effective managers? And, and could those things be learned? Right. And so sure enough, the, the way I did the design, and my colleagues and I, was to say to each organization, now we did, our original research was North America, or actually the U.S., because I, right. I wasn't understanding how global it was at that time. Oh, this, so this is a global phenomenon. Oh, huge. If I go to China, if I go oh. to, the, everyone's having the same phenomenon. Yeah, millennials at work came out in Chinese and it's come out in Polish. So, I mean, it, you, awesome. you could just see it. So I'm out there and saying, okay, 
give me three managers who you consider effective at managing this population and three that are challenged. And my hypothesis was people who saw them in a different light. In other words, if you see millennials favorably, you would probably be an effective manager. If you saw them, you know, in, in, a, in a bad light, you wouldn't be that good at it. What was fascinating is all of the managers perceived millennials in the same light. All of them. There weren't any three that were actually, oh, these no. are actually. No, for the most part, they all, and I mean, there were over 300 managers in the study that said, we see them this way, but how they responded to that perception is what differentiated that group. Mm. And so I also thought women would be better at managing millennials and men. That didn't turn out to be true. I thought parents of millennials would be better at managing millennials, but the opposite of that was true. <laughs> I can the, understand the, that. The one thing out there for your audience is those people who like volunteered in AYSO or Little League or church youth groups, they were in the population of effective because they knew how to initiate a relationship downward. So it's a real transferable skill. If you're a volunteer out there in some youth organization, that's transferable directly to work and makes you very valuable. Well, okay. So you said that there are three things that you're trying to find out. One is, is does this problem exist? And the answer was yes. Yes. If, if it does exist, what is the nature? Is it, what was the second one that you said? What was the nature of the problem? And then how are managers adjusting? Those are the three. Yeah, exactly. So how, how is it, it, if there is tension, what's the tension about? Mm -hmm. And are there people that are effectively addressing that, that, that tension? Okay. So what was the tension about if you were to kind of do a high level summary a high-level summary basically was they perceived them really in pejorative terms, that they saw millennials as defensive, abrasive, self-absorbed, and, and that's how they characterized how they experienced them in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Like I said, now there are those that were kind of saw them, they stopped there and they were just frustrated by them, and there were those who saw those, those characteristics and really engaged them, built relationships with them, and became effective at leading and managing them. But here, here's the deal, and I want to I want to clarify this. Obviously, when we talk about generational theory, generational analysis, we're making generalizations. Right. But, Not but, all millennials are those right. ways. But the point I'm making is that perceptions acted upon create reality. Absolutely. So my motivation in millennials at work in that research was so. So the first one was an inductive study, right? So I'm going out there looking at a phenomenon. And I am going to build a theory to say, right. okay, tension exists. This is why this is what you do about it. The second study was a deductive study in that I wanted to prove a theory. And here's what my theory was, that if millennials are perceived in a certain light in organizations, it will create roadblocks for them that are specific. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. That makes sense. So by the time I did the second piece of research, my clients were like Microsoft, um, Johnson. Boeing, yeah. Tonight, all those. And so I had access to people, young professionals from all over the world. Mm. And so I was able to do the research for that, which was fascinating that all over the world, I hit theoretical saturation in my interviewing, probably within about 35 to 50 interviews. And I did over 800. I just got chills. So you could talk thir to 35 to 50 people, and that could be generalized to the 800 people that you talked exactly. to. It was so strongly felt by everyone. Particularly wow. the challenges they faced, okay? I mean, it was listed. The top 10 challenges, I don't care if I was in India or if I was China, Mexico, or the U.S., 
those challenges were the same everywhere I went for the most part. Do you remember what they are offhand, those 10 challenges? Well, a couple of them I'll give you off the top of my head. Lack of experience, which makes sense. There's a real frustration to go, it's the reason I don't get the job, I don't get the promotion. I don't no, get I'm not well trained. You mean, so this is the millennial saying, I don't have the right, right. set of experiences for whatever reason. Exactly. And, and they feel like they're competent, but they're not. Here's another challenge, not, not, get, not being listened to, not getting respect, miscommunication with older workers, which really floored me. When I saw that, right. I thought, they sense and know that communication goes wrong and it's not their intention, but they realize that they're, they have trouble communicating with authority figures and people older than them. Uh, did another, they say that they had problems communicating or did they express their, their observation as I'm not being respected? I'm not being, um, there were two different issues here. Not being respected and not being listened to had to do with them feeling they were new and young. I'll give you an example. I'm not going to use the company name, but okay. a big name company and hiring people out of Silicon Valley and not really giving them a voice or hearing their ideas for two to three years because the older managers in that organization said, you need to be here for a while before we listen to you. Right. Exactly. Meanwhile, all these young professionals, they hire their friends are taking their companies public. Right. And, and you know, it, it, and they're not less bright. I mean, they're just people that chose to go a different direction. So there's that, that frustration to go, I'm ready to come in and make a contribution, but I'm not allowed to. And, and I'll right. say this, this is what I say to a lot of organizations, millennials come plug and play. If you don't hear a millennial complaining about your processes or outdated technology or better ways to do things, then they're not engaged. Because they oh, come. that's fascinating. Because I would listen to it. So I'm uh, I'm a baby boomer. I'd say, what what is your problem, right? But exactly. actually, they're showing you that they're engaged. They want to actually do something interesting, exciting, meaningful. And I'm kind of interpreting it as like, what is your problem? Stop complaining. <laughs> right. And you know what? And and their baseline expectation of work is that they're going to go in and be a part of it. And they're not interested in maintaining what has been because. They want to self-express and be a part of the future of that organization and make it better. Mm. And so when, when they walk in with this expectation of involvement, we really turn them off. And, and right. that's sad. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So that's what um, you – and then so you actually did all this research. You did this inductive research. You got – very uniform and clear direction on what millennials want. You also have done work with corporations, like you're saying. So if, if I were to actually, you know, be a fly on the wall when you're having a corporate meeting, um, what do you see as the um, blocks that corporations have to embracing and understanding this audience? Because you said similarly, you would talk to the corporate cor kind of managers and they were pejoratively agreeing, like, you know, there's th th this is all true. So what is... What's the disconnect or what's the thing? And I know you said like, you know, they have to think like a little league coach, but what, what else was missing? Well, here's what I say to be effective. And what I learned was that you have to suspend the bias of your own experience to be effective at managing millennials. And what happens in organizations and companies, corporations, nonprofits, I don't care if they're for profit. What you have are people who say the way I did it is the blueprint for everybody else. Ah. And you and, and when we cannot suspend the bias for our experience, it means that we can't ask ourselves questions like, where do I need to change or adapt? What do I need to learn? 
What is it about them that bothers me? And so I would say first and foremost, individuals have bias and then organizations have bias. Mm -hmm. To say, this is how you get promoted. This is how you advance in your career. Uh, this is what recognition looks like in our organization. And, and so what I teach in companies and organizations is how do you suspend the bias of your own experience? Right. And be conscious right. that you have a bias, right? Yeah. It, right. Exactly. Exactly. And I'll give you an example. For instance, here's what I'm asked a lot when I go in, yeah. particularly at the C CEO level, is it, do you think millennial employees are less loyal than employees before them? of other generations. Because millennials got that moniker early on, right. what I call the first wave, went to work before 2008, of, of being disloyal and not staying long. The question I ask back to corporate is, do you think corporate is, is better to their employees or more loyal to their employees today than corporate was 30 years ago? That's a great question. And that's the first question, not the second question. I think if we understand the first question, then we can deal with what we need to do to adapt and, and or how we recruit. Right. Absolutely. That's interesting. Okay. So when you did this research, this book that the most, your re, most recent book, Millennials at Work, you came up with seven different skills that you need to come up with to be um, effective as a millennial at work. Right. And so these are, I assume this is your distillation of what you found to kind of marry these two. There's millennials who right. feel a certain way and managers who feel a certain way. And you came up with seven things. Um, build a relationship, ask for details, see the big picture, know when to focus, go for feedback, be accountable and recognize your value, all of which is in this book. So millennials out there, if you want to know more, read this book. And it's, I, but I, it's alive. <laughs> what? It's the secret to life. <laughs> it is. It's the secret to life. All right. So what I found interesting, there are several times that that you talk about building a relationship as being one of the core, core things that millennials had to do um, and that their managers had to do, right? Because as, as, I, as you described it, there's a problem. Each of you has your biases. Um, you may not be communicating in ways that are helpful for both of you. So build a relationship was the first one. So... Um, I want to talk to, so if, if a millennial is like, whatever, why do, should I build a relationship? Why should I care? Um, what, you know, what, what, why should, what's in it for them? Right. Because that's the, <laughs> what's in it for them. Why should they even bother doing this? Well, I, I think I'm often asked by managers first, right. To say, right. okay, now I know that I, you know, and, and I'll tell them the people with the most responsibility in an organization have to be the first to adapt. Okay. Right. But I say to millennials, if you want more responsibility in your organization, be the first to adapt. Mm -hmm. And so these skills are adaptive skills to help them to overcome the perceptions in the workplace. So let's look at build a relationship. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I contend is that millennials are the first generation who has not needed an authority figure to access information. Yes, that's true. That's a really good observation that you notice in your book. And that's a huge thing that millennials don't even realize. Like the access of, that they know of what's happening in their company, in the world, it's just it's altogether different than it yeah, is. Absolutely. And so if you, if you don't have a felt need to access an authority figure, you don't develop that skill set. Mm, and so right. the point that I make in the book mm. is that culturally – They've grown up in a world where authority figures, they perceive to be for them. They're, they're built-in relationships. 
And it's not that they've made a great effort for those relationships. It's authority figures have come around them, teachers, coaches, and and mentors to say, I want to help you get to where you want to go. And what happens is when they transition from college to work, it's culture shock because it may be the first place they meet an authority figure they don't perceive to be for them. Right. Absolutely. That's, and I'll just share with you as a, a parent of two millennial children, what happens is they have p- teachers who are like, what can I do? What can I do to support your learning needs? How do you learn? Let me adapt my style to whatever your learning style is. I didn't have any of that. It's like, <laughs> sit down, get in the chair, write down my notes. You know, I don't care if you're learning or not, just do it. Right. But all the way from when they're in kindergarten, all the way to high school, and then hopefully proceeding in college, your professor, even the questions that they ask, my son's now applying for college, your questions are, can you work with the professors? Are they there to help support you, right? Do yeah. Are they just on the tenure track or are they there for you? Like, it's a very different, I never asked any of those yeah. questions. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to, <laughs> but they have, like, they're, they're raised with this kind of, you, and you mentioned this in the book, like a very customer support oriented where they're the customer and they're supported by all the institutions that that they've been raised by right and then they go to corporation it's like what you want me to what (laughs) but you work for me yeah exactly you're yeah i'm uh you i I, like i'm the customer you have to please (laughs) what i have to please you what you know it's a it's a huge shift right yes absolutely and it and and there's that baseline expectation that their voice matters. Right. And it doesn't. It could, in corporations, because the cultural biases that you're talking about, right, especially I see this in certain industries more than ever, you need to actually pay your dues before we listen to you. I did this, the person before me did this, and you will do it too. And so if you're a millennial, like, why do I have to do that? Because my friend who just graduated and created a startup is being heard. So why do I have to go through all this rigmarole when other people my age are not going yeah. through this? And you're right. right. In some industries, it's more pronounced than others. And you can look at, for instance, med schools right now. There's just tremendous unsettledness about residency programs and having mm-hmm. to adapt them and change. And it's there's just tremendous tension I have a client that does uh, veterinary hospitals where they're younger vets. There's a real tension with the older vets and the expectation of what their career will be like, what they'll do. Um, engineering firms where you had really two decades of, of a slowdown in hiring. So now you have a population that's mostly baby boomer and millennial. You don't have the middle mm-hmm. Gen X there as the relationship broker. Wow. Uh, attorneys, uh, law firms, you'll see this right. where – it's been steeped in partner culture, and you're going to do these things or else you don't become partner. And, and these new minted young attorneys are coming out saying, I don't want to be partner. Right. So, you know, <laughs> They're so, breaking the whole rules of the exactly. game. Like we came in, when my generation came in with a, a set of, here are the rules to, of the game. You work to me as a, as a slave, so to speak, and you do kind of grunt work. And, and then like if you put in your dues, you will actually get paid longer term. And so now millennials are like, what is that game? Yeah. I'm not playing that game. I've been playing video games where if I do a certain number of things, right. I will be rewarded, you know. But now you're telling me I have to do all this for this law? Like, no thanks. Like, or that makes even, sense to me. Yeah, or even the reward. I don't want it. I want right. something else. And so right. – 
that's where this whole thing's been kind of turned on its head. And the, the cool thing about millennials, and I, this is why I say we have to have a conversation with them, not about them, is it like, let's take the one law firm I worked with. Um, so I said, if partnership's not working and that carrot's not working, let's, what, what do they want? So they came up with a plan for if they work so many hours, millennials would get pro bono time to work for the charity of their choice. That's brilliant. And That's love- brilliant. Right. Because then they get meaning in their job. So I'm not being a lawyer just to help, you know, help, you know, exactly. propagate some corporation and their evil desires or whatever they may think. I'm there to help some nonprofit and help them. Well, you know, and, yeah, and think about it. Okay. So previous generations, a lot of people from previous energy generations that do nonprofit work waited to the end of their career. Well, right. Saying I'm not waiting to the end of my career to help society out or make a contribution. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, so um, so why should it matter for relationships? Going back to it, one of the things that you had in your book that I think was interesting is that the people who millennials who do cultivate relationships, if they decide to be in an environment where they have to work with people of older generation, then the reason why they do that is because they'll be able to get promoted more quickly. Correct. Well- well, not the reason why they do that. I'm saying that the ones who do that, the ones who know how to build relationships upward to authority figures, they're the first ones that get noticed. They're the first ones that get promoted. And if you think about it, we promote people we feel like we can communicate with because then we think we can trust them. And so what, what happens is those millennials that have that skill set, um, they get promoted quicker and move up faster. And it's not that they're smarter or, or better skilled at other things. It's just simply that they know how to build that relationship. A great mm-hmm. little anecdote, I have to tell you. So I love to golf, and I'm on the practice putting green one day. And there's a 12-year-old. His name's Daniel in the club. And he's practicing putting. He's going around the green, and he's stopping, and he's talking to people, stopping. Finally, he gets all the way around the green to me. And I said, Daniel, are you practicing your putting? He says, no, I'm practicing talking to adults. <laughs> It's a skill, right? Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, I want to invest in this kid right now to see the value. <laughs> but, 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 but seriously, CJ, it's, it's interesting. I can go do an on, onboarding event where there's 120 young professionals newly hired in the room. I can walk through that room, and there's going to be about 10 to 15 that are going to spot me. I don't look millennial. And they're going to walk up, introduce themselves, ask me who I am, you know, what I do. Those are the ones, I, if, if I were to track their careers, I'll guarantee you the first ones that get the conversation from mm. me. Okay, so for a manager, like, why do they have to build a, why do I have to be the one that's adaptive and flexible and build a relationship with them first? They should be doing the other, occurring my favor, right? So from the manager, what's in it for them? Why well, should they do this? And, and there you have the deal. The baseline expectation of a manager is that younger worker is going to come up to you and take the initiative. And, and you referred to it earlier the way I talk about it when I'm keynoting is to say, my generation, the only way you had upward mobility was to find somebody with experience and suck up to them. Right, exactly. Right? And, and Kiss some butt. That's the way we all did it. Why don't you kiss some butt? <laughs> but it's true. And, right. and so, so that manager sitting back waiting going, hey, now it's... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's my turn to be yeah. here. And yes. they've got to come and do that, and it's not happening. And the managers go, and here's how they interpret that behavior for the millennial audience. When you're not approaching your manager and not initiating that relationship, they think you're disinterested in your job or that you don't think they have the competency level to have that discussion or to help you or that you know more than they do already at your age. Right. And that's not what millennials think, but that's how that behavior gets interpreted. So. That's why I like to say we have yeah, a perfect- it hurts my feelings. I've been a vet or a doctor and I have a lot of tacit knowledge that I got from hard earned experience. Why aren't you asking me about that? Right? Like it hurts our feelings as managers. And, and you know what? I, 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 think. I love the word you just used. And it's what I say all the time to organizations and what we have right here, this whole dynamic, it's a threat to the transfer of tacit knowledge. Right. Because it is, you don't have a relationship tacit knowledge, you know, that knowledge that's not written down, that knowledge. And, and so that's what I say to organization. I, I don't know if there's a greater threat to most organizations than the loss of tacit knowledge walking out the door. It's their greatest investment, and it's what they should be paying attention to. And if we have a disconnect in generations, then it's not going to get transferred. I'll give you a great example, okay? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm working with an oil field company. And I'm doing management training. And, you know, when you survey an audience, you know who's into it and who's not into it. And so right. this cowboy sitting over on the side, cowboy hat over his face, and his boots propped up on the chair next to him. And on the break, I walked up, and I noticed he was, he was probably toward the end of his career. And I said, you're not into this, are you? And he goes, no. He says, I'll tell you what our millennial plan is here. And I said, what is it? He says, well... See that hat? I said, yeah. He says, we each take $100 and we put it in the hat. And the first one that runs them off gets the hat. So they're trying to scare away millennials? Yeah, right. And so, so then I so – then That's I, not helpful. Right. I said, no wonder I'm here. So I said, <laughs> I said, you know, how much longer you plan on working? He goes, probably, you know, I'll be 65 in three years and I'll retire. And I said, have you ever thought maybe you could transfer what you know and make somebody else a great salesperson? Because this guy happened to be number one in his company. So he took me up on the challenge, and I tracked with him for a couple of years. And sure enough, he was able to take a new hire and take him into a top salesperson. And, and so in this dialogue with him, he said, you're not going to believe this. He said, 
my whole career I've been afraid of losing my job because I didn't have a college education. I've worked my way up from the bottom. He says, now I want to retire, and my company has created a special position for me to help other people like me better understand how to work with millennials. Love it. Love that. I love See, that. Hey, and that's where the, the shift has to take place mm-hmm. in, in a part of our workforce to say, if I share my knowledge, if I take this initiative, it's not going to make me less valuable. It's going to make me more valuable. Right. You know, I just um, uh, was working with a company, it's a Steve Troutman company, and they do that. They actually enumerate the skills that you actually need in order for you to transfer the tacit knowledge of someone who has been doing a job forever. It's so critical, especially what they're finding at this company is for people who are technical in nature. They really need, they're complicated, very complex tasks that you only learn through a period of time, right? Yes, I could probably learn to be a veterinarian at some level at school, but there's a whole bunch of things that you only get through experience and tacit knowledge. So I love that. Okay, so I want to talk about one of the ideas that you have in the book to go dive deeper into this building relationship. So you talk about, um, it's really important that, uh, that you put yourself in the other person's shoes and you actually call it, you call it a perceptual position. So there's millennials who are going to be looking at their own needs. There's managers who are focusing on the needs of other, like if you actually put your perceptual position into the needs of others uh, as a millennial, then you're putting yourself in the second position. And the third, which I call a meta position, where you're looking over the whole scenarios, you're looking without judgment, without, you know, dispassionately, neutrally looking and saying, here's basically what's happening here, the societal, it's, there's like a no fault policy, right? Right now we're all pointing each other. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. Right. Instead, it's like, Come on, people. These are just trends that are happening in society. Once we accept what is and we move forward, we'll have a lot easier time. So I want to hit each of these perceptions. One is millennials who um, you said are saying, hey, um, and you said these map to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I completely agree with. They're saying they they have needs that at at the workplace. And you talked about a couple of meaning. um, But what are their needs with respect to connection? How do they see it? Here, here's the funny thing, and this this alludes back to what I said earlier. Yeah. They come in with the expectation that the relationships are already built. So they don't. Oh, right. Okay. And so that's why that doesn't show up for them as a big thing. Um, right. Because this is an institutional way of working, which it is not. So that's right. like first misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because uh, Tom, uh, who, who is it? Tom Rath wrote Vital, uh, Vital Friends. It was a Gallup poll on friends at work, right? And so the studies show that a person that has feels like they have a friendship with their manager is 2.5 times more likely to stay at that organization. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, right? absolutely. So millennials come in with the expectation that they're going to have a friendship built in with their manager that isn't really a result of any kind of behavior activity. (laughs) I earned it already. Exactly right. Hey, you're here to help me. And and, (laughs) and by the way, and I, and I don't, it's just the way it is. It's their world. And so you can sit back and go, ah, they shouldn't be that way, but that's, that's really the world that they've grown up in. Okay. So then let's take the perception of their manager. So if I focus, I'm a millennial and thinking about my manager's perceptual map, what is the needs of the manager that are happening that I may not be aware of? I think that there's like a built-in institutional, like connect with me thing. That's not happening. What's happening for my manager? I, I think if you're a millennial and you look at the, the, 
manager and try to understand their behavior. Here's, here's a good example, okay? So uh, a manager of a fast food restaurant, and he's got high absenteeism, the worst, right. in, his, worst in his company. And so we're talking. I said, well, why don't you put the scheduling in the hands of the millennials and the people who were not showing up for work? What? Right. He says, I can't do that. You they know. can't even show up to work. And you want me to give them the yeah. hands to every, like well, give them the keys to the castle? Forget no, it. Right? It's better than that. He said, if I, he says, I can't give them that responsibility. That's how I punish people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but, he, but here at the end of the story, here's what happened on the millennials part is, is, is putting themselves into the position of manager. The second position, right? Is that absenteeism went down because they owned it. But when they came back to them, they said, we never realized how difficult your job was. It's impossible to please everybody. But yeah, here's the deal. Millennials come in and, and one of the perceptions is they're myopic that all they see is right here and, and they're not seeing cause and effect several, which is called systemic thinking. Once you expose them, to systemic thinking. In other words, no, Your I can't. Your own do- systemic thinking, yeah. Right, right. And, and, and so when you say to them, no, I can't give you this weekend off, you know, because I just can't, and you don't explain and connect it to say, well, this is going to impact this, impact this, impact this, impact this, and just say, you know, I'm your boss, just do what I say. That's what turns them off. But mm-hmm. they look at these opportunities really to kind of learn. And so in that case, by being given the scheduling, they were able to put themselves into that second position and have empathy for their boss. Right. That's the thing. You One of the skills, seeing the big picture, right? They're able to see the big picture like, wow, this is really hard. And this is a requirement that's needed to have a successful retail organization. Right. I get it. Right. So they understood the consequences of not showing up for their job. Okay. Uh, on, on schedule and everything. All right. So I want to actually show a demonstration of how to do these things. So you actually have, um, uh, let's see, five, four different ways in your book. Every single one of these sections, which I think is brilliant, in your book, Millennials at War, we take each of the seven things. So this is the set uh, five different ways that you can actually build a relationship. Right. And I don't know if we can demo or maybe you can show me examples of how this has worked or you've seen in your work since you've worked with a lot of corporations. But if a millennial wanted to take ownership of the problem of building a relationship or of the challenge, I shouldn't say it's a problem, but to be like, I'm going to figure out how to take ownership of the relationship and be the more adaptive one. Um, how would they take interest in their manager? What, what would that look like? Um, I think to ask them about their career. You know, ask them about what they consider their strengths are. You know, what were the most difficult parts of growing in their career? I think anytime you just ask questions where somebody feels valued, you're you're building those relational synapses to some degree. Okay. So I'm just because uh, I want like for my show, I like to really explain how. So you would set up a meeting and during the one on one, you may say, hey, I really want to understand a little bit about your history, the corporation. And you, could. How, you can say, how would you do this? How would hey, you do it? Here's how I do it. I, I walk up to my, hey, I notice that people listen when you talk. Why is that? You know, what, what, how did you get that? You know, is it confidence? Is it, and, and by doing that, you can draw, most people want to give and invest in other people, but they're not going to just do it without somebody taking an interest in them first. And so that's one of the things I try to tell millennials is that you just take an interest in some of these people and they'll do everything in the world 
to help you in your mm-hmm. career. Right. So like noticing, so actually really keenly observing your manager. I notice that people either take an interest. I notice that you're really good at sales or I've noticed that, you know, when your emails are really well crafted, figure out what it is that you're noticing, actually pay attention and notice (laughs) one and then actually draw more information. Right. Exactly. I I asked Warren Bennis once and great leadership guru. I mean, I just, the guy's amazing. Yeah. Obviously, we've lost him. He's he's not alive anymore. But I said, what is what is some what is one leadership quality that you think is so simple that you would just never write down or even want to put in a book? And he and he immediately answered. He says, "Leaders are first class noticers." Mm, that's so interesting and so true, right? Yeah. I'm, and it's not noticing, it's like noticing how you're behaving or notice how you're being. I think that those are really, as a coach, I'm always thinking about like, I notice that you're really kind to that person. And I've noticed that when I think about each time you talk to someone, it's always really kind. Like, had it, had it, were you always this way? You know, those are the kind of thing, like, who are you being? Or I notice in the meetings that your notes are meticulous. Why do you do that? Or what, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And what, how does that serve you? Like, whatever it is, noticing and getting curious. Versus judging, right? They're right. always taking notes, you right. know? Or why are they always, like, seeming so nice to me? They, some hatchet's going to come down. <laughs> right. Get curious, curious and open. Okay, so the next one is actively listen. Show what this looks like. So um, so let's say that you met with me and you said, CJ, why do you ask so many questions? And I said, well, you know, I'm, you know I, I don't know. I've always been someone who's asked a lot of questions, and I help it. What I've learned is it helps me clarify things, blah, 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 blah. What, 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 what would you do to actively listen? How would, what would that look like? I would give someone feedback to what I'm hearing. Yeah. Not necessarily, you know, but, but to just recapture what they're saying and say it back to them and say, did I understand correctly? Did I hear this? I would take notes in meetings, you know, Right. Um, and if I'm going to take notes on my iPad, I'm going to say, look, excuse me, I'm going to take notes on my iPad, not let somebody assume right. doing something else. I think that active listening is just to say, I see you. I'm present. Right. right. I'm actually <laughs> noting what you're saying because right. or put texting or whatever it is, your, your form of communication, but you're actually noticing because it says whatever you're saying is important enough for me to write down. So it must be actually being absorbed by you at some level. Don't you think when I see someone writing, I think they're engaged, they're listening to me and they care about what I'm saying. Well, and let me tell you how I get this. Sometimes it's so funny when I have millennials in the audience and I have slides up on the screen when they pull out their cell phone and take a picture of it. It's so funny. You look at other generations, they're writing stuff down. The millennial just takes a snapshot and I'm going, that's incredible. <laughs> exactly. I didn't ever think about that. Here I'm sitting here trying exactly. to feverishly keep up with everything, and all I need to do is take a picture of it. <laughs> so, so sometimes, like I had a student in class one time, and she's in the back row of this lecture hall, and probably 75 people in the lecture, and and I see this glow of the screen in her face, and it's a night class, and I'm just I'm getting frustrated because I'm thinking she's shopping or watching. Right. Something. Yeah. And so I'm a, I'm a walker, right? So I'm walking around the class and I went, finally I got over the side and then I just ran behind her. She was streaming the lecture to her friend who was sick in the dorm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, right? right? I think that one of, you know, one of the things that a dear friend of mine has in his company, 
you know, uh, value is assume the best intentions, right? right? If you assume the best intentions versus walking in with your own, you know, judgments about what the other person is doing. I mean, not to be too, I'm not trying to be harsh on you, but it's a general rule, right? If you assume the best intentions, there's probably some good reason that that green screen is up or someone is seemingly texting while they're talking to you. It's like, assume the best intentions. All right. So, (laughs) uh, so the other one was match communication style. And this seems so obvious, but it's not for, for millennials, right? It's like, if you have, if you have a boss that sends you an email, don't text back (laughs) because clearly your boss is already communicating the way they like to prefer. So if you're going to be the more flexible, adaptive one, you have to learn how to email back right? or does it, it go both ways? Like if you're a manager, if you want to be the more flexible one text, cause that's how a millennial or Slack or whatever the millennials but, like. And what, what, what ultimately happens is once you build that relationship, you find that it's easier to communicate in all of those mediums, so to speak. But I say to millennials initially though, when you're trying to build that relationship and that person is trying to communicate with you, if they use the telephone, which primarily Baby boomers are people that like the phone, right? Yeah. And it's it's first person, it's responsive, it's and and so when a millennial does not use the phone to call them back, it's it's very frustrating to them. And so what I say to millennials as much as you hate the phone, you know, pick it up and build that relationship. Once you get to that comfort level, then then you can go you can text, right. So initial yeah, initially build some right. build some phone time. Yeah, and then exactly. you can move to text. But until you actually get your communication, you understand each other, don't go directly to your preferred style because the likelihood of a miscommunication happening, I think, is great, right? Because you don't understand each other and the person's right. intentions, right? Okay, so um, and this thing's so obvious. Say thank you, right? Appreciate when a manager does something that's nice for you, right? Because they're trying, right? right. They, they're trying to add that add that like i'm trying to help you kind of scenario i'm doing something for you what's happening with millennials that they don't get to write like a thank you note well part of it is they come in with the expectation that people are going to do things for them mm-hmm. and i don't say that pejorative i just say that's what their life has been you know right. they've had people oh why should i be grateful for you're just doing what is expected of you manager well, right exactly it's your job so to speak right. and this is this is what really frustrated managers. And, <laughs> and so what, what I try to tell millennials is show appreciation. There's, they get frustrated that they're perceived as being entitled. Right. The best way to overcome that perception is to show gratitude or appreciation to someone when they do something nice for you. Right. It's not that difficult, but yet you'll separate yourself from the rest of the crowd and even other generations for that matter. Right. One thing I do want to say, there's there's something in psychology called selective attention. Right. And so I don't know about you. If you if, Let's say that you want to go out and buy a Honda Accord. Right. And all of a sudden, that's all you see on the road because you filter out everything else and focus in what you're looking for. Um, the same thing happens, I think, in millennial kind of uh, perceptions of millennials is that you could see other generations doing the same thing, but we don't selectively – attend to that. We filter out other generations and say, oh, see, this this millennial did this. This verifies what I think. Like, I'll, I'll give an example of mm-hmm. a, a millennial who rode his bike through a corporate office. Mm-hmm. And okay. everybody's, look how immature you are. We can't right. do this. 
Two weeks later, an executive rides his bike through the office, and everybody goes, you're so cool. You're amazing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> an older guy. <laughs> oh, that's a perfect, perfect example. I love that. I love it. These are so great. All right, so in the last couple minutes, we have a couple minutes left. I want to give um, – um, some introspection. I've been told that millennials in general don't take enough time to introspect, like to think and like, what is it that I'm going to take away from this? What am I going to do with this information that we just talked about over the last, uh, 45 minutes? So, um, so three things that they can do. So one of the things that you mentioned, some things that they can do or be introspective on is to actually write a list of mentors, um, that they have. And you talk about an upward, mentor, which is someone who's a sage in your life, a friendship mentor, someone who will walk you with you through life, a dear friend that will help you. And then sandpaper mentors who are people who rub you the wrong way. I love the sandpaper mentor who will rub you the wrong way with a critical mark, but you can really learn a lot from. So if this is one of the things that a, a millennial should take away and like think a little bit about, what, 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 what advice would you give them about finding your upper mentor, friendship mentor, and sandpaper mentor? Well, two things. One is their upward mentor, um, reach out to them and acknowledge it and say, this is what you, you're, how you're speaking into my life. And, mm -hmm. and this is how I value your voice. Um, when that happens, it has a tendency to, to solidify and build that, that mentor role. Um, also too, I mean, millennials need to know that there's going to come a day where it's going to be, you know, most every mentor mentor relationship goes through a period of probably a five-year struggle of separation and coming back together simply because you grow and create your own perception and those kinds of things. But look for those mentors that are upward and say, this is how you're speaking in my life. This is where I value you. That friendship mentor to say, you know, I want to bounce things off you. You're, you know, millennials want a sounding board yeah. and that's what they want in leaders. That's what they want in their friends is somebody that will listen to them. And so look for those friendships and say, this is a value, acknowledge that. Because again, what it does is strengthen. Now, in a sandpaper mentor, you don't have to look for them. They'll find. <laughs> <laughs> Can my mom be my sandpaper, yeah, sandpaper mentor? <laughs> okay. They'll find you. So that's not anything you really have to think about. But I think the only they're, thing to think about is thinking about actually, how can I take their critical remarks and actually learn and grow from them? Is there some truth in here, right? Absolutely. And it, it's if you, you can't listen to everything they would say because you'd want to kill yourself. But right. pick out that per, you know, pick out something and say, am I hearing this in any? And what I always like to do is if you have a good upward mentor, a good friendship mentor that you say, this is what the sandpaper mentor is saying to me. You know, what do you think about that? What would oh, you say? Perfect. And, Love that. And, and they may be able to soften that blow or find the truth in it, but also be able to support you through through hearing it. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Sandpaper mentors, it points can be almost catalyst for us to do things that we want to overcome. We want to, at the end of the day, we can't, we can't take a hundred percent of what they say, but we can take some of what they say. Right. And I think actually the use of your upward mentor and your friendship mentor to help you be kind of a sounding board is a great idea. So I have, I have three things for um, millennials who are listening to, to <laughs> contemplate. One is um, you, we've actually given five different things that you can do, right? Uh, take an interest in your manager, actively listen, mass commute match communication style, show appreciation when a manager does something nice. 
So I guess I would ask, um, I would ask the millennials to think about which area could they actually improve in, right? What, what area are they not really like, okay, maybe I'm deficient in all five areas or maybe one out of these five areas, but pick one and then, and then come up with their second thing is come up with their list of mentors and ask them, do I actively listen? Let's say that, you know, the number two is something that you need help with. Do I actively listen and ask my friend, can you help me actively listen? <laughs> and then, you know, whatever it is, but kind of getting really specific. I think what I really liked is get clear with what you need to improve on, come up with the people who are going to help you and then get specific about what you want their help in. If you do those three things, I think you're on a really good path to moving and executing a lot of the great ideas that you have in your book. Any other closing remarks before we, fi we finish up? Well, the only thing I would say is that, you know, for millennials is sometimes that lack of patience that they say about themselves is it can be detrimental to their career and their development. Mm. And so when things aren't moving at the pace you want them to move, pause and ask yourself, what can I learn from this frustration and this mm -hmm. experience? What can I master? What can I master currently in this role that's going to help me transfer to other roles? And so, for me, a lack of patience probably is their greatest Achilles' heel when mm. it comes to career advancement. They can be so concerned about their next position that they're not really giving full attention to their current position. And so that's what I would say to them. And I would say to organizations with millennials, and, and we talked about it earlier. If they're not challenging you, then they're not engaged. So right. create an environment in which they can challenge you, and it's okay. Love it. Okay, we've been talking to Dr. Chip Espinosa, and we've been talking about a book he co-authored, uh, Millennials at Work, Managing the Millennials and uh, Discovering the Core Competencies of Managing Today's Workforce. Uh, thank you so much. This is fantastic. Thank you, everybody. And... Um, we're going to have a ton of really interesting programs, all focus on millennials and um, being productive at work in this new way. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, you can watch a video at Fired Up with CJ on my fa uh, home uh, Facebook. I have a Facebook page. I have a YouTube channel. I have a website, www.firedupwithcj.com. Chip, what's your website just so folks can find it? ChipEspinoza.com. Okay, E-S-P-I-N-O-Z-A. Com. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Fired Up with CJ. You can join the conversation, contact CJ Lou yourself, subscribe to her YouTube channel, and find her Facebook page. And check out more shows online now. Get links to it all at firedupwithcj.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.